It is good to open the scriptures again together back to the letter to the Hebrews. If you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7. And as you do that, recognize that that Bible that you hold in your hand contains 66 books written by 40 different authors over the span of roughly 1,600 years. And yet, this book is without contradiction, without error, and all 66 books contain one story of redemption from beginning to end. Now, how is that possible? It's only possible if this book has another divine author who has inspired the words written by each of those human authors. And of course, that's exactly what we have in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Peter says the same idea in 2 Peter 1.20, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. What that means then is that not one single word written in the Bible is there by accident or without extreme significance. All of it matters all of it's profitable, all of it edifies. But what we also have to understand is the other side of that coin, that God not only sovereignly ordained the truths that would be included in the scriptures, but he ordained the things he would leave out. We see this in places like Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things, that is those things that God only knows that he's not revealed, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed, that is the scriptures, belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may observe all the words of this law. Now, when it comes to biblical interpretation, our responsibility as interpreters is to understand the revealed things, the things on the pages of scriptures. We are not to concern ourselves with the secret things, but leave those to God alone. But on occasion, a New Testament author will be inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal some of the secret things that God intended with an Old Testament story or character. And perhaps nowhere in Scripture is that more clearly demonstrated than in the letter to the Hebrews concerning the mysterious character named Melchizedek. Bible students have been puzzled over this curious figure, Melchizedek, for centuries, for millennia. And this morning, what we need to understand is that the mystery surrounding Melchizedek is exactly what God intended. He intended for this mystery to surround Melchizedek, but not so that we would be fascinated with Melchizedek, but that we might learn something about the Lord Jesus Christ. The divinely inspired mysteries that surround Melchizedek are intended by God to point our attention to several key truths about Christ himself. And we're going to begin to do that this morning in Hebrews chapter 7. Now, it's been a while since we've been in this letter. Let me quickly remind us where we've been. The theme of the letter, of course, is the superiority of Christ. And we're dealing now, for, for some time we've been dealing with this idea of Christ as superior to the priesthood. That is superior to the, the Levi, Levitical priesthood, the Aaronic priesthood. 
This is a long section, halfway through chapter 4 all the way through the end of chapter 7. As we've seen, it breaks down into four smaller sections. We've finished the first three of those. Now we're to really the climax of the argument in the fourth component, which is chapter 7, a further explanation of Christ's priesthood. But we can't forget that all of this discussion about Melchizedek started way back in chapter 5. And we've been on this extended pause, if you remember, But in chapter 5, verses 9 to 11, the writer said this, And having been made perfect, he, that is Christ, became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 11, Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. So the author started to tell us the the mysteries surrounding this man, Melchizedek, and how those mysteries informed us about Christ. But he said, time out, you're not ready yet. And as you'll see, if you're dull of hearing, you're going to have a hard time comprehending the things we're about to study in chapter 7. It's not for the faint of heart. At times it may feel as though we're, we're going through more of a history lesson than a sermon. But understand, there is rich spiritual truth in these historical details that God inspired to be recorded about Melchizedek. But if we are spiritually apathetic and dull of hearing, we will miss the great significance that God has for us in these verses. And that's why the author saw it as fitting to take a long pause and to wake us up, you remember, with some stern words of warning so that we would be ready to hear Remember, he's told us in chapter 6 that we are to imitate the faithful, the the faith of those who came before us. And he gave the example of Abraham. He told us to observe and imitate Abraham in chapter 6. And then he told us to cling to the hope that is ours, the hope that is ours in the promise of Jesus Christ, who's the source of eternal salvation and who has given us assurance of that through his continued ministry as our high priest. Remember, the last passage we studied was Hebrews 6, 19 to 20, which says this, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There the author admonished us to cling to hope because this hope of Christ is our anchor and this hope of Christ is in heaven as he ministers there on our behalf. Now this is an instance in scripture where the author chose to give us the application of a truth before the argumentation. Oftentimes it's the other way around. But here, he's already given us the application. Now he's going to jump in chapter 7 and argue why he said the things that he said. And that's important for us to keep in mind because it will be our responsibility then to keep the application continually in mind as we go detail by detail through this description of this man Melchizedek. And what we have to understand is that while our temptation often is to prioritize application over argumentation in the scripture, both are inspired, both are crucial. And actually, if you skip over the argumentation and just run to the application, you miss the the potency of that application. 
And so what really should happen this morning and as we work our way through chapter 7 is every time we see a new detail about Christ and how that connects to this man Melchizedek, we should see our spiritual hands gripping our hope in Christ tighter and tighter and tighter as he proves what he said to us one detail at a time. So the hard mental work of straining to understand the inspired truths about Melchizedek and how they relate to Christ are worth it because in the end they will strengthen our faith and our love for our Savior. With that introduction in mind, let's look then to our verses today. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 to 3. Hebrews 7, 1 to 3. For this Melchizedek... King of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, was first of all by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now in this introduction in chapter 7, back to Melchizedek, we're going to see two primary observations about Melchizedek. And it's here in this message that we'll get more into the history of who Melchizedek it was. And so if that's been a, a burning question in your mind, I hope we'll answer that today. And then as we continue through the rest of chapter 7, we'll be looking at other details that, of significance because of that. But really there's two observations. The first observation we'll call the historical significance of Melchizedek. The historical significance. And really this breaks down into two parts. There's two elements of his historical significance. The first element is Melchizedek's historical roles, his historical roles. What roles did he play in his earthly life? Notice he begins, for this Melchizedek. That reminds us then that really we're tying certainly back into the end of chapter 6, but really all the way back to chapter 5, verse 10, as we read earlier. And you remember this argument began, I know we've slept since then, but back in chapter 5, all of this began as an exposition of a psalm. Remember, the the author of Hebrews is not just making these things up. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's inspiring him. But he makes each argument based on an Old Testament passage. And the argument he's making here is on Psalm 110, verse 4. And he quoted it back in Hebrews 5. Let me me read to you where he begins the argument. Hebrews 5, verses 5 to 6. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest... But he who said to him, you are my son, today I've begotten you, just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That short little quote there in verse 6, that's really what we're expositing all the way through here in chapter 7. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110 and verse 4. So keep that in mind as each of these arguments are made. There, David, in Psalm 110, prophesied by the Holy Spirit that the Messiah would be a high priest, and he would be a priest not by the line of Aaron, 
but by the order of this man, Melchizedek. That prophecy is what is in the back of the author's mind. But there's a second place where Melchizedek appears in the Old Testament. There's only two places, Genesis 14 and Psalm 110. And so what the author's going to do is show us how these two passages come together. How do we take the historical details in Genesis 14 and apply those to Psalm 110, and what's the significance of that to the Lord Jesus Christ? That's the argument that we're going to look at. So these details about Melchizedek that he's going to mention here all come from Genesis 14, and we'll read that account here in a moment. But notice he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem. He's going to mention two specific details about him. The first historical role that this man played is he was the king of a place called Salem. Salem is most likely, almost certainly, the region that would later to become, be known as Jerusalem. Jerusalem. This is Salem or Jerusalem later. So the first role that he played was that of a king. He was a real earthly king in a place called Salem. But not only that, notice a second detail here. He says he was king of Salem, priest of the Most High God. Priest of the Most High God. So, astonishingly, this Gentile king was also a priest. But not just any priest. Because it says specifically, he was a priest of the Most High God. Now, what does that designation mean, Most High God? Well, understand that during the time of Abraham and Melchizedek, Almost universally, people believed in God. Theism was the, the philosophical thought of the day. Everyone believed in a God, but very few believed in the one true God. Most of them believed in some form of an idol. And so this designation, most high God, is a way of putting apart the one true God that Abraham served, and apparently Melchizedek served, from those pagan idolatrous gods that were falsely named God. So what that means is Melchizedek was a priest of the one true God, the same God that you and I serve, the same God that Abraham served. Now these details, as I mentioned, are not coming out of thin air. They're coming right out of Genesis 14. So I want to look at the historical context here. We're going to read Genesis 14. It's very short. Melchizedek only appears in a couple of verses. But Genesis 14, we're going to start in verse 17 and read verse 18. Genesis 14, 17. Then after his return, this is Abraham, from the defeat of Kedorlaomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shiveh, that is the king's valley, verse 18. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God most high. There are our two details. It's exactly where he takes them. Verse 18, Genesis 14. So here we have this historical description, Melchizedek, king of Salem, Melchizedek, priest of the most high God. But here's the fascinating thing. In Genesis, if we think in the context of Genesis just for a moment, up until chapter 14, the focus at this point is now moving to Abraham. Abraham has been the focus at this point. And in chapter 12, Abraham has just received the Abrahamic covenant. That it's through Abraham that God will, will make this nation and give them land. And through his seed, all the nations will be blessed. And yet here in this, in this moment, in this instance, we, we see that God was not only working 
through Abraham. You know, that's easy for us to think because the focus is on Abraham to think he was the only believer of his time. He was the only person that God was working through. But no, there's this other man unrelated to Abraham named Melchizedek that apparently knew and loved and even served as a priest the one true God. What does that tell us? It tells us that God has always had a heart for the nations. Always. Even in the, in the time period in which Israel was on display as the, the crown jewel, the lighthouse through which uh, everyone was to see this is the one true God, God was bringing in other Gentiles uh, to that nation who would receive that true uh, God and, and come to him in faith. And apparently that's what happens here. Even a contemporary of Abraham, Melchizedek, was a true believer in the one true God. But not only that, historically, notice the two roles in one man of king and priest. Now that should catch our attention. One man, two roles, because remember, when we're talking about the Levitical priesthood, it would have been impossible for a person to serve as a priest and a king. Because under the Levitical system, these were drawn from different tribes. Kings came from the tribe of Judah, and priests came from the tribe of Levi. You couldn't be in both. And so this concept of, of a priest and king is, is now coming to fruition here as we see there is a man historically who served in both capacities at the same time. His name was Melchizedek. Now with those historical roles in mind, the author of Hebrews now wants to talk about Melchizedek's connection with Abraham. And this is the second element of, of the history behind this person, Melchizedek's Abrahamic connection. Now, I know this is a lot of detail, but stay with me because, as I said, these things matter, and there's a, a big spiritual point behind all of this. For, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. Now, what's the, what's the point of, of highlighting this connection between Abraham and Melchizedek. Well, remember, the whole argument that we're really talking about here is the, the exaltation of Christ as a superior priest to the Levitical priesthood. From what bloodline did the Levitical priesthood come? Abraham. So it all starts with Abraham, right? And all the kings and everyone would come through the bloodline of Abraham. And so what the author of Hebrews is doing is taking us all the way back to the beginning, to the beginning of the nation of Israel, coming and meeting this other Gentile man named Melchizedek. And what he's going to show us is that actually it's Melchizedek who was superior to Abraham. And that's going to play into his argument about Christ. Now let me give you the, the little bit of the context here so that we understand what's going on in Genesis. What was the context? What was the reason that Abraham met this guy named Melchizedek? Well, all of this comes in the context of a great military victory. It's described in the first half of Genesis 14. We won't read that for the sake of time, but let me, let me just summarize this for you. At that time, there were five kings of neighboring cities who were all subservient to another king named Kedor Laomer. And apparently they got really tired of serving this other king. They were probably having to pay a tribute every year that was very expensive. They did this for 12 years and finally they said, you know what, we're done with this. We're getting rid of this 
this guy Kedorlaomer, and all five of them band together and rebelled. Well, King Kedorlaomer didn't really like that, and so he got some of his friends. He got three other kings with their armies, and so four kings on five. They went to war, and the, the people that rebelled lost. Kedorlaomer won. He, he took over that area. He took all of, their, uh, all of their wealth, and he also took several people as uh, prisoners of war, slaves. Now, what does that have to do with Abraham? Well, one of the five cities that lost the battle was the city of Sodom. It's the Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom, before they were destroyed. Now, at this time, think back to your, to your, uh, your time in NBC Kids or something like that. Who was living in Sodom at this time? Lot, right? Uh-oh, that's Abraham's nephew. So when Abraham hears that Lot has been taken captive, he jumps into action. He gathers the people in his household and some of his allies, and they muster 318 fighting warriors, and they go on the attack. And astonishingly, as a miracle of God, they defeat Kedorlaomer and all the kings with him. And they bring back all the people, and they bring back all of the spoils. Well, you can imagine that all the kings were very excited about this. The king of Sodom comes out to greet him and to say thank you. But also this man named Melchizedek. This is the occasion for their meeting. Melchizedek comes out in response to Abraham coming back as a victor of war. Here we have the fullness of their meeting in Genesis 14. Let me read to you what I left out earlier. Their entire meeting takes place over three verses. So that's all we have. We have three verses here about Melchizedek and one verse that mentions him in Psalm 110. Genesis 14, 18 to 20. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now, he was a priest of God most high. He blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. That's the end of the interaction recorded for us between Abraham and Melchizedek. Now the author of Hebrews, as he's thinking about what's said in Psalm 110.4 and what happens here, he begins to pull out some details that go together with this idea of Christ being a priest forever through the order of Melchizedek. First of all, notice the detail back in Hebrews 7. The first detail he mentions here, he says this Melchizedek, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. Now, the author's going to expand on this later in chapter 7, so I'm not going to get too deeply into it, but here's the, the, the basic significance of that. The, the one who is greater gives a blessing to the one who is lesser. So, Melchizedek calls on God to bless Abraham, and the point that the author here wants us to see is that that means that Melchizedek was superior to Abraham. But if you doubt that, it becomes really clear in the next thing that happens, because notice how Abraham responds to Melchizedek and his blessing. Verse 2, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils. What's happening? Basically, Abraham pays a tithe of 10% from all of the spoils of war to God through Melchizedek. 
So obviously Abraham recognized Melchizedek as a true priest of the one true God because otherwise he never would have given a tithe to God through this man's priesthood. Again, another evidence that this priesthood was legitimate, but also that Abraham saw Melchizedek as a, as a true representation of God, a representative of God, and as superior to him in that sense. Now that brings us to a second large observation about Melchizedek. We'll call the spiritual significance of Melchizedek. That was the history. That's, that's who he was. But now let's look at the spiritual significance of that. Before we dive into the details of this, let me just mention, because I know some of you may have studied Melchizedek, there are, there are three basic views on who Melchizedek is or was. Uh, two of those views I'll mention first that I, I do not believe uh, match the text, and the third is the view that I'll be arguing for. But some have suggested, first of all, that Melchizedek was an angel, that this is an angelic appearance to Abraham. But really, there's nothing in the scripture here in Genesis 14 that would give us that indication at all. There's, there's no angelic language. Also, there's no, uh, no history in the scriptures of an angel serving as a, like, like a human king or a priest. Those are not roles ever attributed to them. So that one's pretty easily set aside. The second suggestion that's perhaps more popular is that Melchizedek was a pre-incarnate appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, that one is put forth uh, often. But that one's problematic as well because, again, the language in Genesis 14, though it's brief, there's nothing there that would indicate that this is an appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. That does happen, but normally when we see a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ in the Old Testament, we see the phrase, the angel of the Lord. Not, not an angel of the Lord, but the angel of the Lord. When that happens, that should let the bells go off that this is very likely talking about a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. We have nothing like that here. There's no indication that Melchizedek was anything other than a real human being that lived historically at a real place at a real uh, point in time. He was a real king and he was a real priest. So that leaves us with the third option. And that is, this is an example of what we call typology. That Melchizedek served as a type of Christ. What is, what is a type? If you haven't heard that word before, here's a definition for you from Baker's Dictionary of Theology. A type is a shadow cast on the pages of Old Testament history by a truth whose full embodiment or antitype is found in the New Testament revelation. More simply put, basically, this is an occurrence in the Old Testament where a person or an event uh, points to a greater fulfillment of that person or event in the future. Melchizedek, there's certain details about him that point to a greater fulfillment of that priesthood and, and kingship in the Messiah, in Christ. So he is what we call a type, a real human being who lived a real human life, real king, real priest. Now, stay with me here. There are two elements of Melchizedek's life that pointed forward to Christ. This is the spiritual significance of Melchizedek. The first is this, element number one, Melchizedek is a type of Christ in kingly character. A type of Christ in kingly character. Look back at verse uh, two of chapter seven. To whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils, this Melchizedek was first of all 
by the translation of his name, King of Righteousness, and then also King of Salem, which is King of Peace. Now understand, the, the, he, the author of Hebrews is making some inspired deductions about Melchizedek. If you just take the name Melchizedek and translate it, it means something like King of Righteousness. That's what he means when he says, by translation of his name, King of Righteousness. In this case, Melchizedek was a real righteous king. His name matched the character of his reign as a righteous king. But more than that, this serves as a shadow pointing forward to a greater reality of a coming king who would be the true king of righteousness, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in addition to that, he says he's also king of Salem. That's the name of the city. And then he says, which is king of peace. Why does he say that? Well, MacArthur notes that Salem is from the same Hebrew root as Shalom, which is the Hebrew word for peace. So by translating his name and by translating the meaning of the name of the city over which he ruled, the author is deducing that Melchizedek pointed forward to Christ in the sense that he was king of righteousness and he was king of peace. Christ would be the perfect fulfillment of these things. And we see that attributed to Christ in Romans 5. It says, therefore, having been justified, justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we've obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in hope of the glory of God. Jesus Christ will be the one whose, whose reign is perfectly righteous and perfectly peaceful because he's purchased that peace by his own righteousness applied to us. And so in this way, Melchizedek is a, a type of Christ. He points to Christ because Christ would reign in righteousness and Christ would reign in peace. But really, the second element is the main point. And this is the one that he will camp out on for a long time in chapter 7. Because element number two is this. Melchizedek is a type of Christ in priestly perpetuity priestly perpetuity. That is, he will be a priest forever. And here in this final verse, verse 3, we really come to the main argument. Verse 3 says, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. Now, as I said earlier, and I do want to emphasize this, when it comes to interpreting scripture, you and I don't have the right to read between the lines. We ought not to, to try to pull out interpretations that are, are not clearly there on the pages of scripture. But God has full liberty to inspire New Testament authors to read between the lines and say this is what God meant all along. Because here, as the author puts together Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, he sees similarities not in what is written in Genesis 14, but in what is left out. The details that God intentionally left out about Melchizedek are why they're such a mystery. And it is that mystery that allows him then to point to Christ. What are the things that were left out about Melchizedek? Well, first of all, he says, without father, without mother, 
without genealogy. Without father, without mother, without genealogy. What he means is, there's no mention of where this man came from. We don't know his parents. We don't have a genealogy, which is also significant, by the way, for two reasons. First of all, if you read through Genesis, you will notice there are several strategic genealogies mentioned, particularly in the early parts of Genesis. That's because what's happening is they're following this promised seed in Genesis 3. We're we're following that through these genealogies. But all of the major characters up until this point to Abraham have had a genealogy listed for them. But no genealogy is listed for this, this priest and king, Melchizedek. But secondly, this is important because the Levitical priesthood was dogmatically tied to genealogical records. If you were not in the bloodline of Levi, you were not going to be a priest. If you weren't in the bloodline of Aaron, you were never going to be the high priest. And so it's interesting that this man Melchizedek has no genealogy. Nothing's mentioned about that. Not only that, but it says that he is having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So there's no mention of his lineage, but there's also no mention of when he was born, and there's no mention of him ever dying. And that's part of what makes this man so mysterious. He literally seems to appear from nowhere, and then he recedes back to nowhere, never to be mentioned again. And so what the author of Hebrews is saying is that God meant that all along. God sovereignly chose not to give us any of these details about his genealogy or his birth or his death to leave this open-ended sense of mystery. And that was inspired because it would point to the glories of Christ. This inspired lack of detail leads up to the author making the astonishing statement next, that because of these things, not having a lineage and not having beginning of days or end of life, that this Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. That's what he says. But made like the Son of God. Now, let me explain what he's not saying. He's not saying that Melchizedek was in any way divine. He's not saying that he had no parents. He had parents. He was born. He's not saying that he lived on forever. This is a man who was born and died. What he's saying is God's intentional uh, omission of these details gives the, the sense that he had no beginning and no end. And that is the shadow of the reality that one would be coming who truly would have no genealogy, although he had a human genealogy in his divinity. He never had a beginning and he never had an ending. He is the son of God. And this one, would be the king of righteousness and the king of peace and the priest who would reign forever. Jesus Christ is the one who is the ultimate fulfillment. And in that sense, Melchizedek was made like the son of God in the sense that he pointed to the coming of the son of God. Remember, this is how Jesus would describe himself when John encounters him on the island of Patmos in Revelation chapter 1. This is after the resurrection, after Jesus now is in his glorified state. John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me saying, listen, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Now, what is that? It's a declaration of the fact that he is eternal. I am the first and the last and the living one. And I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. This 
is the true fulfillment, the Son of God, who though he died in his humanity, has no beginning and no end, and has been raised even in his humanity, and is alive forevermore. And this brings him then to the climactic statement of verse 3 that will propel us into the rest of the chapter. The climactic statement is this. Because he was made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. He remains a priest perpetually because there's no mention of his beginning, no mention of his ending. It it has this sense in Genesis 14 that this priesthood just continued on. And this was designed again to function as a type of Christ, a shadow. You know, shadows are mysterious. If you think about real shadows, If you try to study the details of a shadow to to get a better understanding of the object that's casting the shadow, you you can do that to an extent, but it only goes so far. A shadow doesn't give you much detail. It gives you limited information. But when the real object appears, the glory of the real object, no matter what it is, is always greater than the shadow. There we see the fullness of the detail, and also we can look at the shadow and say, oh, that makes sense. Now that I see the object that was casting the shadow, I can see what, what's happening here with the shadow itself. And that's exactly what's happening with Melchizedek and with Christ. Why does he push to this idea of a perpetual priesthood? What is he getting at? Remember, this all ties back to Psalm 110 verse 4. And what is the emphasis about the Messiah in Psalm 110, verse 4. Listen to it again. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The emphasis is on the word forever. That this priesthood will be perpetual in nature. And that's what he's getting at here at the end of verse 3. He remains a priest perpetually. And this is why the priesthood of Christ would be different than that of Aaron and the Levitical priesthood. And it's one of the main reasons why his priesthood is superior to that priesthood. It's because the Levitical priests all died. There had to be genealogical records for the the descendants of Aaron and the Levites because they were going to die. And somebody had to take their place when they died. There's no need for a genealogy for the Lord Jesus Christ because he's never going to stop ruling as king and he's never going to stop ministering as high priest. It is perpetual. It is forever. It also solves the mystery of how one man can serve at the same time as a king and a priest because In the same psalm, in Psalm 110, in verse 2, he also says that this Messiah is going to be a king. Psalm 110, verse 2, the Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter. This is kingly language from Zion saying rule in the midst of your enemies. If you're a Jewish person, this had to be a great conundrum. How is this going to happen that this person is going to be the king and yet have this perpetual priestly ministry. This has never happened in history, a Jew might think. And the author here says, yes, it has. In the order of Melchizedek. In the order of Melchizedek. I want you to see how all of this is coming together. He's saying that a king is coming in the Messiah 
who will not only rule in righteousness and peace, but who will serve perpetually as a high priest. And that priesthood will far supersede the previous priesthood because his priestly ministry has no end. And it's here, Christian, that you should begin to feel your grip tightening on your hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. As all of these methodical details start to come together, it's here that the applications that we studied several weeks ago should now be ringing in our ears. What are some of those things that were told to us about the significance of the priesthood of Christ? Well, listen back to Hebrews 5, verses 7 to 10, where it says, In the days of his flesh he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Remember, Christian, the emphasis here is that Jesus Christ is the source of your eternal salvation. And what we see here now is that this priestly ministry of of Christ is also the assurance of our faith that we will have that eternal salvation. How can you rest assured that in the end you will be brought safely home to God for eternity, Christian? How can you rest assured that your citizenship in heaven will one day be realized and that Christ's eternal kingdom will be yours forever? How can you rest assured that God the Father won't change his mind about forgiving your sins and though he's cast your sins as far as the east is from the west that he won't go out there and dig them back up again? How can you know that? The author of Hebrews says you can know it because Christ has secured all of these things for you by his own life, death, and resurrection and now he stands right now as your representative before the Father as an eternal witness that the price for your sins has been paid in full and that the love that the Father has for his own Son has been extended to you and you will one day surely enter into his eternal kingdom as an adopted son or daughter. That is the ground of our assurance. That's the reason he's gone to all of these details. Don't you see the glories of the mysteries of God, Christian? That all the way back in the time of Abraham, he is, he's bringing him into contact with this person, Melchizedek, knowing all along that we would be reading Hebrews one day and understanding the true significance of this meeting with these two men. Understand that in the meeting of Abraham and Melchizedek, you have really all of the functions of Christ coming together. You have Christ that is going to come and be Messiah and king through the bloodline of Abraham. And you have Christ coming to be priest through the ministry and the order of Melchizedek. Coming together in these two men. This is amazing. It's a reminder that, that God planned our salvation before the foundation of the world. And then he brought it to pass one methodical detail at a time. We should look at the meeting between Melchizedek and Abraham and marvel at God, the goodness of God, the providence of God, to bring all of these things together that we might have assurance that for all who come to Christ in faith and repentance, there is eternal salvation. 
If this is true, Christian, then what possibly could shake our faith in Christ? As Paul says, will tribulation or persecution or sickness, even death? If you're in Christ this morning, then your eternal salvation is as secure as the eternal priestly ministry of Christ. It doesn't get more sure than this. But you know, maybe you're here this morning, you've never come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that God has a message for you in this passage as well. In his ministry as this eternal high priest, understand that Christ only represents those who have come to know him in faith and repentance. What that means is that you must come to confess that you are who God says you are, that you're a sinner, that you've rebelled against a holy God, and that you deserve his righteous judgment for your sins. That's what the Bible teaches, and you know it to be true if you're honest with yourself. And yet the Bible also reveals the glorious truth that while the wages of sin is death, Romans 6, 23, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you will repent of your sins, that is turn from your sins and put your faith in Christ alone as your only hope of salvation, believing that he lived and died for your sins and then rose again from the grave and is even now at the right hand of the Father. The Bible says if you will believe that and put your faith in Christ, you will be saved. And this eternal priestly ministry of Christ will be yours as well. He will represent you before the Father every moment of every day for the rest of eternity. This is the good news of the gospel. If you're not in Christ, I plead with you to, to, in your heart of hearts, even now, turn to him in repentance and faith and know the fullness of salvation. But if you're in Christ this morning, this passage reminds us of the truth that while we will certainly experience the trials and the difficulties and the uncertainties of this temporal life, God has sovereignly and perfectly provided for our greatest need. The thing that we need the most will never be in doubt, will never be shaken. He's given to us salvation, and he planned it perfectly before the world began. Isn't it a comfort to know that God's plan of salvation was not a reactive plan? It's not as if God saw the sin of Adam and Eve and said, Oh, no, I didn't see that coming. i got to make up something here to, to fix it. No, no, no. In eternity past, God sought to redeem a people for himself by his Son to his own glory, and he's done it perfectly. Even now, Christ ministers on our behalf. What is the, the ultimate application of this? Well, I would say it's this. As you leave this morning, let me encourage you to strengthen your faith by meditating on Christ's eternal priesthood. Strengthen your faith by meditating on Christ's eternal priesthood. This, this passage calls for meditation. The details that we've studied this morning about Melchizedek and the way his life was a shadow of the future ministry of Christ, this should captivate us. It should cause us to want to strain our minds to understand more of our Savior. And these things should cause us not to stand in awe of the man Melchizedek, but to stand awe in the Lord Jesus, of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Look at how God planned Christ's priestly ministry and brought it to pass. Think of the way the Savior stands even now on your behalf and ministers for you before the Father. Picture him there standing as a testimony of the fact that your sins have been forgiven so that you can have confidence, Christian, that whenever the Lord calls you home, you will be welcomed with open arms. And as you meditate on those great realities, what you'll begin to notice is that your heart is comforted and your faith is strengthened. Remember, that's what this has all been about. The faith of the Hebrews was wavering. It needed to be shored up. It needed to be strengthened. And God inspired the author of Hebrews to remind us of the security that our faith has in the priestly ministry of Christ. And so when your faith grows weak, Christian, when you worry that your faith may be on the edge of faltering, turn your mind to your precious high priest who ministers incessantly for you by grace. This is the way we cling to hope. You know, life on the one hand truly is very short, but many times it feels awfully long. How do we hold on? We hold on by fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ and by remembering things like this. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The eternal assurance of our faith rests on the eternal priesthood of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we are overwhelmed at your goodness. When we encounter passages like this, when we confess that we quickly feel inadequate, we, we see the details, we see how marvelous you are and how you brought all of these historical things to pass, but for a purpose, a much deeper spiritual purpose, God, help us to stand in awe of our God to have a renewed confidence in the gospel, a renewed love for Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you minister continually on our behalf. Thank you that your ministry will never falter or waver. May you, by the power of your spirit, through this truth, strengthen our faith that we may stand in the midst of the trials and difficulties and temptations of life, resolute in our love and faith for you, May it never waver because you will never waver. We thank you for this and so many more things. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.